Shane Hayes and coming up we take a deep dive into the musical I don't want you video track to the Girl Talk album all day the amazing musical Girl Walk all day with filmmaker Jacob Kreptik um, but first off what I watched this week um, I actually kind of caught up I've been able to watch mo- almost a movie a night this week, which I haven't been able to do the last few weeks in the pandemic. Uh, the coolest thing I saw this week, which is kind of going to be a glimpse, hopefully into next week's episode was a John Ford movie, the last hurrah, which it's comes two years after the searchers it's um, TCM has been showing a bunch of political movies and uh, the other po- the podcaster, John Suntra said recently in, in, a, in a world balloon episode that this was his favorite John Ford movie, and it's Spencer Tracy uh, in a role Spencer Tracy ostensibly said he could have retired on. And when you watch the movie, you see it. It's he could have it could have been a great last role. Um, it's a great movie. I was I always find so many more great pockets in John Ford, and as we'll discuss hopefully on next week's episode, I've been on a John Ford kick. My director's kick of uh, directors to explore probably for like the last five years going on now. And so I keep finding new John Ford movies I haven't seen because he made so many movies. And it doesn't contain a lot of, you know, what, for lack of a better term, the muscular cinematography that you expect from him. There's a lot of studio shot stuff. And as an editor, I normally don't give a shit about uh, continuity, but there's some funny continuity flaws. But all that being said, TCM, like I mentioned, has been showing political movies uh lately which it's a nice respite from um the current um election coming up uh because you get this sense that a lot of hollywood politics movies especially before watergate are so non-ideological or they're so vaguely ideological like the it's that vague sense of if you follow the pathways of uh, Republican Democrat parties throughout the last century, you know, everything before, you know, Newt Gingrich or Watergate or the civil rights bill turned so many Dixiecrats into Republicans. It was, those were the big transformations of the partisanship of the current parties. And before that, uh, all Hollywood movies, when they dealt with politics were just about, the rich and centralized interests. They were against bankers. They were against newspaper tycoons, things like that. And you, know, you see a lot of this in Capra. And if you've ever read Mark Harris's great Five uh, K Back book, you see that Capra didn't have the best uh, politics, kind of actually, or policy, especially during World War II. For someone who made uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, one of those movies that inspires so many people to uh, public service. This John Ford movie follows under the same vein, and I've been really wanting to dive a little more, whether it's in a conversation with somebody or reading something into John Ford's politics, just because uh, Ted Haycraft, our frequent guest host, he and I have been getting this conversation about uh, dated movies 
and can you judge older movies by a modern lens? And I've been thinking about it a lot lately. And I think the the um, metric I am using, I think, is does that movie still have influence on today? So if you see a John Ford, John Wayne movie, does John Wayne's portrayal of masculinity still have an effect on how men think they have to act today, which I would argue, yes. John Ford, he made so many movies that were on so many subjects, I don't know. Like, if I, like, I could not accuse The Last Hurrah of toxic masculinity because this movie has so many men crying in it. Um... This movie's on TCM for, uh, or at least on watch TCM for another few days. I was duly impressed with it. It has an amazing ending. Uh, it has an, like, Ford has this way of being very non-structured and plotless for a long time until suddenly a very good ending comes up. And sometimes in that ending, the sentimentality that he's known for comes in. And that's certainly the case here, but... Also, this movie has such an amazing last line for such a sentimental movie. It's it's a great last line, um, especially uh, if you guys are not looking forward to Tuesday as I record this right now. If you want to look back on simpler times, can't recommend the last round more. <laughs> Jacob Krupnik is on today's episode as we go take a deep dive into his film Girl Walk All Day. So this movie played uh, at South by Southwest in 2011 and has been available for free on the internet. You'll be able to find a link to this movie in the show notes. You can find it easily on YouTube or Vimeo. But for those of you who are familiar with the Girl Talk, Girl Talk just as a as a music DJ set, uh, Girl Talk's amazing engineer who manages to mix songs and, and uh, separate stems and, and can make uh, these long, sustained, pop-familiar songs you're aware of, rhythms you know very well. I was really unfamiliar with Girl Talk's music, I'm sorry to say, until I saw this movie. I didn't wasn't aware of this movie, as he and I discussed later, until IndieWire came out with their list of the best movies of the decade. This movie is on that list. And deservedly so. Like, if you, this movie is just an absolute charm start to finish. It is, there's no dialogue except for a few lines subtitled. It's almost entirely a s- dialogueless musical that's done completely with dance of three characters who communicate and dance. It's um, DYI shot in Manhattan uh, with has like a flash mob vibe but it's shot with real people and real dancers just randomly dancing through manhattan and it has a sustained narrative narrative for 76 minutes that it is just an absolute charm i've loved this movie every time this movie never makes me fails to make me smile every time i recommend this movie to someone it never seems to fail to make them smile uh especially again with election day coming up this might be the modern musical equivalent of the you know what old musicals used to do this is definitely one of the best musicals of the new century uh it's a g- 
great, great love letter to Manhattan. Uh, it's just, just lovely, just lovely creative dancing. Uh, it's almost breathtaking in how sustained it is in keeping uh, what's ostensibly a plotless narrative or definitely a not uh, writerly uh, word-based narrative going. It's it's available for free. Uh, we'll link, again, we'll link it in the show notes. Um, but here's my talk with Jacob. Clark. That looks like a very uh, cozy attic space you're in. It's a very cozy little spot. So my wife and I bought a little A-frame upstate New York seven years ago, pre-kids. It's tiny. It's really lovely. Oh, wow. And it is too small for... <laughs> Three pe- kids? People with two kids, but two oh, kids, two is, kids a, sorry. is a lot more than one. Um, it's still a lot of kids. It's a lot of kids for a tiny space. It's significantly smaller than our apartment in Brooklyn. Um, yeah, we left We left at the beginning of quarantine time. School was out. Uh, we needed child care. Um, our kids are, are three and five now. And... Um, they're needy. They're wonderful, but they need a lot, and um, there's no there's no way around that. So, you know, the the reality is, um, after a summer of bouncing around and spending time with my wife's parents near Albany, we've come to what used to be our weekend getaway, and was then mm-hmm. a superhost Airbnb, a frame, and is now our little squat spot um, about two hours north of New York, and they go to a school that keeps them busy for six hours a day and my wife and I try to scramble and get as much as we can get I done. I was just hearing today that uh, one speculation by someone I trust or somebody, um, epidemiologist from I think Yale saying he thinks the average person won't have a vaccine or herd immunity, whichever happens first, mm. about a year from now. And he also started talking about the actual like fallout of it, like the psychological fallout. And he speculated that we won't be back to normal till 2024. And then he followed up by saying that we'll probably have a uh, roaring 20s this century, apparently afterwards, where everyone will want to go to restaurants (laughs) and movie theaters and clubs afterwards, which in theory sounds nice, but that's at the end of the next (laughs) presidential term that we're about to vote on. So Um, is this is this where we turn the corner and actually you reveal to me that this is a kind of like anti-vaxxer fuck you, freak out podcast, and I'm being punked. <laughs> um, uh, anything goes, man. You know, if, if you if you got something <laughs> you need to get off your chest, which right. I think that's the thing I'm finding talking to more people. Like, yeah. we've been cooped up. A lot of us have a lot to get off our chest right now. So Yeah. Where are you based? So I am based out of Indiana. Right. I spent most of my time in Austin. So I was actually in town when the movie played at South by, uh, and I was oh, trying wild. to remember wh- okay. what year, what year did it actually play at South by? Was it, it 2012? Was 2012. It was 2012. Yeah. Do you remember any other than the movies? Cause, um, I was going through my list and I remember I was working at the time, but I thought of movies like, um, um, the Miranda July movie, the future played the Conan O'Brien documentary played. The funniest one is, I was sharing an office with one of the producers on Bob Byanton's movie that was then playing Then Somebody Up There Likes Me. I remember seeing that. 
but I remember also working a lot during that South by, so I didn't see much. That's I, I, I um, Girl Walk, Girl Walk All Day is a project of committed amateurism. Um, <laughs> and to that end, our experience at South by Southwest um, was kind of like a series of misbegotten fuck ups. Um, I, Did you guys, do you guys shot something at South by itself? We shot right? something at South by, which is actually pretty fun. It is really a fun little piece. Um, by the way, should I avoid profanity? Is profanity acceptable? Do whatever the fuck okay. you want. Okay. Ah, you um, see what I did there? Yeah. You see that? Ah, I dropped <laughs> the F-bomb. To let you know, you can say an F-bomb. Permission granted. I mean, the Permission granted. The, the South by experience was was like a series of, of, of you know, appropriately, appropriately sized fuck-ups. Um, for someone who hadn't made a film, hadn't been to a film festival, and didn't really know what he was doing. That we was your it, first film festival? That was my first film festival. Um, it was, wow. you know, we were invited under kind of unusual circumstances. Um, at that point, um, the film was out um, online. There was a bit of hysteria around the idea that there was this film shot in public and the excitement of, um, kind of girl going crazy and the excitement of crowdfunding was all pretty new and the internet mm. was in a completely different place. I mean, this is like yeah. nine, eight, nine years ago. And, you know, I think that the way that people related to projects in general that were exciting was quite different. And, you know, we all get stuck in our own age and our own mentalities, um, mm -hmm. our, own, our own expectations. Of, I mean, you become familiar with um, how many times we'll say, the more times you get excited, the more times you get thrilled, um, it gets a little bit tougher to uh, feel that again. And I think well, that- Well, especially right now, getting excited about a film festival. Exactly. You know, I think mm. that when I went into that experience, I didn't know anything about what to expect. Um, we booked flights late. I, I had been to South by Southwest once before, um, filming my best friend uh, who was in a band. So I kind of had a sense of what the vibe was from a music perspective, but I was one of 16 people staying in a hotel suite. Um, okay. So fast what forward- What year was that? It's probably 2007. Um, and uh, so- My first year was 2006. Okay, so fast forward a little bit. Um, we had no money. We had been touring a bit. I had made this film for no money. Um, we'd been trying to did share it in public for, you know, as many people as we possibly could. Did you tour with the film? We toured with the film, and by the time we were at South by, um, my wife and I, uh, we had just gotten married, and we had decided to do like a West Coast tour. We started in Seattle, uh, went to Portland, went to Eugene, Oregon, and San Francisco and Los Angeles, and we showed it maybe ten times on the West Coast. We did a Northeast tour. We went to South by Southwest. We went to Mexico City. So we had been on the road um, for maybe a dozen shows by the time we were in South by. And we were kind of too broke and too ill-informed um, to buy tickets for everything in advance. <laughs> so um, I was shocked by the cost of flights. The closest we could stay was 10 miles away. It was early Airbnb days, so I had, you know, dancers staying in an Airbnb that's, you know, only for four people. We had probably 10 who were packed in. 
to this kind of suburban home, um, like way outside of Austin. It was completely the wrong way to do it. So wait, are you working right now? Like you, you mentioned that you were uh, submitting. I have a friend who um, on Instagram who works at South by, and she said the South by deadline is tonight. And you said you were submitting something new to for uh, a new <laughs> musical short. <laughs> so yes, the South by Southwest deadline is tonight, and I submitted my short film last night. Um, mm-hmm. I have a I have an unusual short film that actually is another dance film. Um, it's quite short. Oh, it's cool. four minutes instead of um, you know seventy six. Uh, as Girl Walk was, but it's um it's made with a woman who's a she used to be a ballet dancer, um, with kind of a prestigious uh, company in New York, um, and she um I met her through a, through another project. I met her by chance, and uh, I guess about three and a half years ago now there was a kind of a freak snowstorm um, that was heading for New York, and I thought with my um, good friend and regular DP, um, we thought, man, is there any way we could do something tomorrow during this snow squall? Um, could we, f- and we love, we've, we've done a lot of work together. Your first filming thought dance. during the snowstorm was to like try to find something. Like, let's find a dancer. You, you, yeah. You wanted like, to do a dance thing in the storm? Yeah. Like it, we wanted to do what was essentially a dance, like a, like a test. We wanted to do something, um, with our do you equipment do that a lot when our... you test something and then like, well, let's just keep it because it actually worked. Not enough. No, I mean, I, I have I have like twenty of those urges a year, and I probably mm. get around to like between zero and four of them. Um, and a lot of that is because like life's busy with young kids, and a lot of the time, you know, the the really tight knit pals who I can call on for those things. Um, are busy, and so you really need the stars to align. And in this case, the stars aligned. I, I asked a friend, "Hey, would you be down to do this?" He said yes. We started reaching out to dancers we knew or wanted to work with, um, and we needed someone kind of like, "Okay, it's nighttime, and we need someone tomorrow morning." Um, and the first person who I got to agree and and, and agree with with vigor um, was someone who I just met, and she was a former ballerina and. Um, and is a yoga teacher now, and um, so she, when, she when said, did you shoot this? We so we started three years ago, and she said, um, "I'd love to." So this I is said, obviously pre-COVID. Yeah, it was yeah exactly very much pre pre-COVID. It was three years ago, and um, she said, "I'd love to dance with you, um, but you should know one thing: I just found out I'm pregnant, and I'm having triplets." And it was, it was such a wild combination of saying yes. Um, I'd like to do this with you. And also, here's, here's the, the most almighty asterisk. Um, and so we wound up filming, um, you know, I became pretty close to her through this process and, and we became good friends. And, um, you know, I, I just immediately kind of took to her story and um, felt interested in telling a story that was bigger than our camera test, which is, you know, kind of a besides the point idea. Um, and we decided to make a film about her pregnancy um, about her transformation. And so we filmed three times. We filmed once each trimester, different seasons um, and in different places. And so it's a, it's a kind of short, powerful, um, it's kind of a testimony. A dance film about, tra- about pregnancy and transformation. It's about pregnancy and transformation, but it's also, um, 
she's black and she is aware of how um, there's, there's more and more national awareness um, about how, um, just how sort of, how unlikely it is that her kids, I mean, she's really thinking about how unlikely it is that her kids are going to be treated reasonably um, by police. She's scared for mm. their safety. And that was, that was a lot of what was interesting to me about the project, even though that, um, the commodity of black occupying, bodies. Yes. And that winds up occupying a really small part of the film. Um, but it's, it's sort of where the film arrives at the end. Um, so, well, okay. I do want to ask the, are you a dancer? I'm not a dancer. I mean, I, I'm a, I'm a person who loves to dance. I'm, I, I don't dance enough. I don't dance much these days. COVID has me, um, relatively sedentary. Um, you're not, but you're I'm, not dancing in the New York, uh, upstate New York autumn leaves. I'm not dancing in the autumn leaves, but I am the kind of guy who, um, who really savors my once a month, oftentimes solitary trip to a dance club or a bar where someone I know is spinning and, and just kind of letting loose. I like doing, I like dancing. Um, I'm not a, I can't really dance with other people. I suck at it. Um, okay. and I embarrass myself. So well, let, I don't mind do doing a, it alone. Let's do a movie rewind. So, um, uh, where are you from? Um, I think of myself as being from New York. Um, I moved to Manhattan when I was 10 years old with my mom. Um, and before that I'd been kind of a Connecticut suburban kid. Were um, you in Manhattan the whole time after 10? I, I was in Manhattan from when I was 10 until I went to college. Um, I went to college Jeez. upstate and I moved back. Um, uh, when I graduated, I moved to Brooklyn and, um, felt sort of vaguely embarrassed that I'd lived in Manhattan. Um, cause it was just that point I finished college in 2004 and it was just that point where, um, I moved to Brooklyn and Brooklyn had, uh, kind of unlimited cachet and unlimited cool places to, to go and be. Um, and I've lived in Brooklyn pretty much since. Wow. Mr. Zeitgeist pulse, pulse feeler right there. That's That's good timing. Um, wait, where'd you go to college? I went to Vassar college. It's about two hours oh, north shit. of New York. Okay. Um, so what, uh, when you were living in Manhattan, um, what was the, um, what were your big cultural teenage moments? Ooh, I mean, as a, as a kind of, were you a movie person, a music person, a dance person? As like a 13, 14, 15 year old kid, I was, um, I was music obsessed. I was not, um, I had no special interest in film. Um, I went to a lot of movies with my mom. Um, but I'd say like my, my big cultural influence is my brother. Uh, I have a brother who's 12 years older than me. And when I moved to New York and I'm 10, 11, 12 years old, he has just started, like he's just finished college and moved to New York himself, not living with us, but he's got a hot job as like a really junior editor at Rolling Stone. And he Jesus. winds up writing, he winds up researching, he winds up being the personal assistant to Hunter Thompson for three or four years and Jesus. having his own kind of wild, um, you know, his wild stretch. But he's um, a super inclusive big brother and is like inviting me to shows and inviting me to events and I'm friends with all of his friends. Um, and they're all, you know, a full, a full generation older than me. Um, he would send me, when I was in middle school, 
then he would totally abuse the system by um, messengering a stack of 20 Rolling Stone magazines um, to the school. And so I would get buzzed on the intercom that there was a what, delivery for me, what which was absurd. Is this? this is like mid nineties. Uh, it was like 1995. And, um, okay. and so I would, I would get a huge manila envelope with like a dozen or 20 Rolling Stones. And there was a period, I suppose, where Rolling Stone was genuinely, genuinely cool. And I would just give them well, out. Yeah. I kind <laughs> of, I remember that period of, I guess I hate to put it here, but after Kurt Cobain's suicide, like completely. I, yeah. I, yeah, I mean, completely. I, it, I remember, well, I mean, I'm being from a small town. Our big deal was going to the library to re check out old Rolling Stone back issues. They, I don't think they had cream at our local library, anything cool like that. But, um, so what movies were you watching as a teen? What movies was I watching as a teen? I was watching, um, I was kind of watching whatever was in the cinema that was hot, like the cinema. I sound very, um, very. <laughs> A, a, attempting pedantic like the I, cinema I would, of independence the, the, the cinema i mean the things that were the things that were really memorable to me um the and the things that i think about since are you know films i'd go to see with my brother um you like i remember seeing t like a, a a reissue of orson welles touch of evil and being hmm. completely blown away this, um, this would have been the recut I suppose, but I really don't know, to be honest. I'm, I'm, I will, I will be. Um, I should say now, I am. Um, Girl Walk All Day is a is an act of committed amateurism, um, and it's also it's made by someone who even almost ten years later is is not a serious film guy. Um, okay. I kind well, of got. I like. I did not get into film. I didn't start making films until I was in my late twenties, and I didn't really learn what I was doing until. Were you coming Fuck, through practically music this year? Then? I came through it. For, you know, I was a photographer after college, and I've been interested in music and and the way stories are represented in photojournalism and storytelling through images and art. Um, I studied sociology and urban planning. Um, well, let know. me let me from a cinematic standpoint. Let me ask you: Were there yeah. any musicals you liked? I loved musicals as a high school kid. I would, um, yeah. I mean, I think. I can't stand, I can't really stand musicals now, and there's no reason that I can put to words, but I, I would go to the theater with my mom, I'd see, um, like, definitely seeing Phantom in the first couple weeks after moving to New York um, rocked me. Um, mm -hmm. Seeing Les Miserables was huge for me. Um, I remember going with my mom and her falling asleep, first intermission, falling asleep through the second act, and me being just wrapped, um, the stagecraft and the music and the costuming um, were were huge to me. And that would have been before I started going to see, you know, punk shows and and, and shit like that. Like I was definitely excited by the theater. Um, we'd see stuff off Broadway too. Like we'd see stuff that was small. Um, I remember seeing a, 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 a there's a show called A Bombardy of Errors. I think that was like a. <laughs> A hip hop trio take on um, it was like a survey of of Shakespeare, um, done in really eloquent rhyme, and um, yeah, we'd see a lot of things. Like I saw I saw Rent when I was I don't know fourteen or something, and I thought, holy shit, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> okay, there's something about this that makes sense, but you're not saying like any movie musicals were really all that big of a thing for you. 
Not, no, not really. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that my, my brother was definitely into like, you know, I was like, I was the 11 or 12 year old singing pavement songs because of my brother. Um, I was like, I was like definitely, I had a, like a, a taste in music that was way ahead of my time. Um, well, I imagine being because in Manhattan, of you kind of have to have a taste ahead of your time too. But it, but it was really, it was really because of him as sort of the, the shepherd. But, you know, he was also into weird, like things that, that at the time seemed really weird to me. I mean, I, um, you're asking for specific references, so I, I have two. One is, um, I'd say, um, The City of Lost Children, uh, which is a film by okay. Janae yeah, and Caro. And, you know, they, I, I went to see that in a, in a theater, and I don't know what year that came out. Um, I was, I a, I was an early teenager. Yeah, I mean, I was an early teenager, and I remember being, um, being really shocked and confused and not knowing what I was watching for most of the film. And that's up there with films that I've returned to um, the most since I was a kid. Um, okay. And I'd say like, their films in general really interest me, and most of them are, are like, kind of deeply flawed. Um, yeah, well, I was going to say from the my Midwest perspective, Alien Resurrection would have been, oh, you know, yeah, yeah. no, I, I remember <laughs> yeah. being so excited, like, I'm going to theater, by, like, I'm into film, and I like yeah. Alien franchise, and hey, they got a European director to do it, and totally, totally, yeah, that didn't yeah and out. it's like a complete disaster, um, and then I remember I went to, um, I went to an opening night screening with my brother, um, the night that Pulp Fiction came out, and the, you were at this, the were you at the opening night in New York at Pulp Fiction? It was um is this theater this theater called the Zigfield, which is kind of storied and is just gigantic and I think no longer officially no longer exists. It kind of had a slow death. It's like right near the plaza. It's right near Central Park, and it's it's just colossal and it's kind of regal. Um, How it's called was the, theater? the Zigfield? Oh, is completely sold out. It's like completely sold out show. Um, I'm probably I don't know probably like 14 or something. And, you know, we have a seat, like, like really at the, at the heart of the theater. It's, like, right in the middle. We're surrounded by people. And, you know, there's, you can hear people hooting and hollering. There's, like, you can hear big bottles of beer hitting the floor. Um, someone sparks a blunt nearby, um, which I don't quite know what is. Um, and my brother explains to me. And this is, like, just as the film is about to start. And... It's kind of like seeing, um, I mean, it was almost, it was like, it was more like a, like a fucking rock concert than it was seeing a film because there were a thousand people who were going wild. And the film to me was, um, I've probably seen that film four or five times. Um, but what's really memorable to me about seeing it the first time is watching something that was uh, totally discontinuous and that had a pacing that I'd never seen before. Um, hmm. I feel like, I mean, I, I, there are a bunch of Tarantino films that I think are pretty amazing. Um, and I've, I've watched all of them, um, but I'm pretty cautious about my, my kind of like professing affection for him. Cause there's, there's shit that he does that I think is so good. Um, there's things about Except him as a person not. that I think are so reprehensible and unlikable. Um, hmm. And I think in a way, like his demeanor is so ungenerous and so mean. Um, and I kind of love it for that, but it's also wildly different from how I think about making work. So mm. I would say like Tarantino is 
a, a super interesting filmmaker to me, but I'm also like, I guess I'm here on record saying that, but I, I also feel like, oh God. I think the point I was getting around to earlier, though, is that I find it fascinating that film music is much more bigger influence on the movie. Dance a little of more of a personal thing and that this movie just organically comes about. It's the magic and form that it comes to not from film history because it because it's funny how like I don't know if I was projecting onto it all these great film musicals, but it feels like a great silent film that also but it's also as a musical that just doesn't have it has like what one piece of dialogue in it really yeah 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 Yeah. i mean i think i think something that um something we haven't talked about but also isn't necessarily there's not necessarily so much to say is like i i watched uh, a fair amount of television as a kid and for me almost everything was kind of we'll say once i was between 10 and 18 um everything was kind of second to mtv um i'm a kid of i'm a child of mtv and there was a there was a period of um i'd say even starting when i was like seven or eight years old um to when i was maybe 13 or 14 where i think mtv's programming um was pretty terrific like there were there were shows that um that actively sought out music that wasn't quite as mainstream, um, which corresponded to. Were you a 120 to, minutes kid? I was a 120 minutes kid, all, all like as as often as I could be. You know, I think seeing, um, I think part of what's fun to me about music videos is like they they are fundamentally each their own universe, and some are boring, and some are interesting, and some are original. And were you all, following the music video directors closely? I mean, pre-internet. We'll say in, 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 yeah no I, actually now as soon as I say that yeah I mean it's kind of impossible as, to do that as a as a TV consumer like you're you're as a t- TV consumer you kind of know Spike Jones did Buddy Holly but that's about it yeah I mean your your viewing is inherently passive right like things come on and you see them or you see half of them and that's you know that's a big part of I think. Um, I'm 37 years old. That's not going to be a part of my kids experience is like entering shows or songs um halfway through um we start everything at the beginning and so anytime you flip we're, to TV, we're a year apart like i i remember like you'd see you'd um you'd watch a video and then wait another hour because you knew that they were going to repeat the same cycle of video so you'd exactly. wait to that same point in the hour to watch it again exactly so i think that you know there's something about um there's something about yearning for something to come on and the thrill of seeing it which Absolutely. I mean, because scarcity is what they were working with back then. Um, Then, you know, like fundamentally you're excited in a different way and you're keyed up and your attention is very different when you see something for the third time or the eighth time um, that you're curious about. And I think that one of the things that was interesting to me about music videos in in retrospect, I didn't think this at the time, because there were all these songs that I thought sucked and banned. Like I was kind of anti-pop when I was in my 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 punk and alternative phase, um, same even here, though same I was here. I was never that tough. Um, then there was all this 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 shit that I thought was way too soft. Um, 
But when I look back on it now as an adult, I'm like, look, I never liked Janet Jackson, but I can remember six or eight of her music videos pretty carefully. And now when I hear the songs or I see the videos, I'm thrilled. And so there is something there about like the way that um, if you are a, I think that bands who are really popular were doing things that were experimental and, and in a way like the, um, the popularity of the band didn't necessarily correspond to how wild uh, the music video was. Um, you know, I remember when, when Prodigy's well, there's also the budget Smack too. My Bitch yeah. came out. Oh then, God, yeah, um, I remember that one. You know, the, like the, the, the kind of race to see it for the night that it was out before, maybe it was two nights that it was out before it was banned. Didn't they do a thing um, where they kind of vaguely thrill. banned part of it? They banned or it. Something? They banned it. And I think that, I think they banned it and then edited uh, and, and censored it. And I remember just like that feeling of, of um, I mean, it's kind of like the race to see a daring piece of art, um, which I really like. And I'm sorry that that, I mean, there are ways in which that exists now for sure. I had a, um, I had a friend who showed me the, um, this, I had a friend who showed me this bootleg version of, um, um, it was Nash Nails follow up to downward spiral. And, but at the same time it was a video VHS yeah. release. Yeah. And I want to, I, there was definitely some pornographic elements to it. Which, oh yeah. It, I mean the Nine Inch Nails videos were, were so fucking creepy and really like really, really impressively creepy. Were those, were those Mark Romanek? videos he did he did a big chunk of those yeah he yeah. did um uh i know he did perfect drug which to this day is still one of my favorite music videos yeah but that was you know that was like that became a big influence for me and i'd say you know i'm not i'm not making anything video based for another 10 or 15 years so it's not like it wasn't um i don't know like pretty regularly i i read the bio of some director I'm looking up and it's like started making skateboard videos at 14, graduated to this, graduated to that. Going back to the um, music video influence, um, I don't know if that answers my question I was going to about to ask, but do you think of the movie as a feature or an extended music video? Or I think on the website it's listed as like a feature dance movie. Okay. Yeah. So we haven't really talked about it. So, um, the the way that I think about Girl Walk has changed a lot since I made it. Um, I'd say, you know, when when I started the film, when I had the idea for the film, it was sparked by hearing the Girl Talk record. Um, it was the beginning of the fourth track in that in that album this this is definitely going to be another set of questions but I yeah mean, i mean the, i, I the guess when i saw of, the, when, when i saw the movie you just assumed it was in conjunction with the band but i guess it wasn't it wasn't um you know i was i was down photographing um i was photographing landscapes around miami um with a large format camera really slowly um as a personal project and uh the girl talk record came out and it was free there's not a lot of free music um coming out that you really want to listen to in like 2010, 2011. Well, there's um, the big one, but which was two, what, two years before that, but yeah, but Rainbows, I'm making a joke. Yeah. We'll, we'll say, <laughs> but we'll say, you know, the first time I listened to that, I was like, Oh shit, this is, this is the new thing. And the record was cut up into tracks and it was delivered as a, as a full mix too. And, 
the fourth track, you know, maybe 12 minutes in, there's a Portis Head, Big Boy remix mashup moment. And as soon as I heard that, then I went from listening to music to um, having a small epiphany about how I could connect some dots, which was I had met, I'd met a couple dancers working on a separate project, one of my first video projects, um, a few months before, and been thinking, how could I do something else with them that would kind of justify showing off their talents? Because there were dancers who could do a lot of different kind of movement. And I didn't know anything about dance at that point. Um, were, did you get a sense at the time that they were very imp they could be improv based on their dance? Yes, quality? at least with with Anne with Anne I had a sense with Anne it was really clear that this is someone who because I'd edited the I'd edited a you know five minute dance track she had danced to um, Human After All by Daft Punk it's just seen her move through all these different well styles the transitions and, alone are just yeah just kind of breathtaking clearly something is happening in her mind as she's dancing that is um it's not seamless um it's not it's almost like she's blending together multiple different genres of yeah style she dance. is you know she is definitely when i first saw her i thought oh you can see her thinking about these things but that doesn't make it any less rad it is completely, completely fun. And so when I, when I heard, was there a lot in the movie? Was there pre-planned choreography though? So, okay, so well, the because the, I, um, I, I was always struck by the very opening whenever um, I forget where the drums come in and it's around move bitch get out the way and she just starts shaking her shoulders to the yeah. beat in her head. Yeah. That that to the rhythm always kind of was like oh shit this movie's yeah. not this movie's taking prisoners. Yeah, you know when. I, Girl Walk's the first serious film I made. I'd made a handful of short pieces before that. Some were experiments, some were some jobs for other people. Um, but Girl Walk was the first serious thing I'd made by such a huge margin that it's kind of astonishing. Um, and I remain interested in, you know, I keep working with dancers. I keep working with storytelling through movement. Um, but a lot of my work has changed. One of the things that I find I keep going back to, though, when I work with people in trying to tell stories through movement or dance, is that I have to know a fair amount about the person whom I'm working with to have any ability to guide them, to recommend things to them, to ask okay. requests of them. And so with Anne, you know, I didn't know anything about her the, the night I met her and, and when she danced for this first project, but in the months before we filmed, um, I spoke with her a lot about what you know, wh what was her dance background, where did she come from, um, and the answer was her own awkward, you know, high school and and kind of early college experience in New Jersey, and feeling also totally kind of oppressed by the suburbs and never quite fitting in, and and really yearning to make a splash and you know pressure from parents and pressure from the world and and as someone who is pretty interested and pretty committed to dance from a really early age she's also just facing all of these um like quite predictable uh pressures that you hear about um from anyone who's a dancer like the the pressure mm -hmm. to be perfect to be thin to be remarkable, what to was sing. in the first scene, um, all the black yeah, and white stuff. Yeah, and to be, you know, to be a kind that, of idealized type of so performer. Fast. 
so I didn't, I didn't mention this to you earlier, but the first place I came across this movie wasn't at Southline in, in twenty twelve. It was when it um it was really late in the game. It was when it was on the uh, IndieWire Best of the Decade list. And oh, I remember okay. cool. And so I kind of sat down for an afternoon. And I was like, all right, let's see this. And I start out with these like DSLR black and white shots that are kind of great. They seem like greater grayscaled. And I'm like, oh, okay. Oh, yeah. And then the movie just, like, even, it kind of, I don't know, it's just, it, it that whole, what you're just describing came across very clear in, at first, like, in like, a, okay, we'll see what's happening. Wait, and then when it turned to color and then the dance started happening, I was like, oh, I think I got very quickly why <laughs> this movie got on that list. Let, But I'm like, six minutes in and I'm just like, let's see if this can maintain itself. Yeah. And then I just progressively had a smile on my face that just got bigger and bigger for the next 76 minutes. It just, it's, it's really all her. I mean, we'll say the, the, cause there's just such a sense of invention that just, just keeps coming. It just, the sense of outbreak, like the sense of outbreak oh, and man, of that's outrage a great way to describe it. and explosion. Yeah. It's all Anne's story. It's all, an ex it's all a, an interpretation of how, um, like how imprisoned she feels by expectations and how pissed off she feels by um, just by how lame the expectations are around her. And I think she, you know she she's someone who felt um, that we'll say we were filming that when when there was a, a whole fleet of um, of like big old dance shows and competitions um, that were just getting off and. I think she she wanted to be a part of that and simultaneously thought it was just completely pathetic. And we talked a lot mm -hmm. about that and and how her her character, her role should be always kind of in opposition to that. Well, but there's also this great feeling of like all the music, and it comes across multiple times in the movie, especially um, when she wears the sign. Uh, like these places, these dance are always coming from a place of joy, and it's always coming from a place of communion where she's wanting to dance. Especially more in the second half of the movie, she's wanting to dance with people. Yeah, yeah, and she's kind of like racked by the challenge of um, how to engage, and and also confused by why other people are not. And that to me is like, I mean, in that way, um, there's a nice balance between her energy, which is I want to dance all the fucking time, and mine, which is, um, hey, I, I, I love the freedom that comes with dance, mm. but I'm also petrified of it myself. Can we talk the logistics of shooting? Yeah, definitely. Can I, ra can I rapid fire you some of stuff? So totally. you guys, did you guys shoot MOS, I assume? Um, we shot with two, um, so kind of one-on-one -on, -one on how we shot. Like for the most of this, for the most part, I'm shooting a Canon 7D. I bought a second Canon 7D. I did most of the this is shown on a steady 7D? cam. Yeah. Um, that, wow. I, most I, the, I, I still have a 7D. Like it's <laughs> perfect, movement. Perfect. Well, that movement is just like, I don't. The, the, yeah, how you got that much movement on that? I taught camera. myself. Um, I taught myself how to. I, I bought myself a Glidecam 2000, um, mm. and um, did a did a couple rehearsal days with the dancers, and then we got to it. Um, a lot of the time, I'd have a, a you know my my partner in crime on this, Sam Peterson's a friend from college, um, and he was like a filmmaker, more of a producer type, but he was 
happy to come along and had time and was like a boundlessly supportive you know partner and sometimes he would do the steady cam usually i'd have him on the longer lens um and um yeah it was usually like one of us on the steady cam up close pretty wide and then the other um with a 70 to 200 on a monopod just okay. ripping you know well I, I there seemed like there was some like kind of vaguely flash mob scenes would you get more shooters for those or was it still always two the entire time there's a bunch of scenes where it's one camera. There's some where it's two. And then there's a couple, right, where it where it clearly breaks into more perspectives. I think the only two that I can think of, though... The park at the end? I think the only two that I can think of were there were more than two cameras. The finale had four. Um, the, um, the scene at the dance parade, um, we put a call out. Oh, um, that makes sense. I think at first through Kickstarter and then through maybe like early early twitter early for me twitter holy cow you got the um, single ladies sequence done in just two cameras single ladies is two cameras um Jesus, we did man. three takes with single ladies and i think i think just about all of it comes from all of it comes from one take like we're always trying to build you know the single lady sequence is an example of of something we do a good handful of times where we're trying to build a certain amount of pressure in a situation and knowing very little about filmmaking when I shot this, then my sense of uh, continuity and how much of an issue it would be was uh, was was <laughs> non-existent. And so I didn't really know how much we'd be able to cross cut between takes. And in, in that case, we just absolutely had to hang on to the people who are on camera. So mm -hmm. yeah, but I think I think there may have been like a couple wides that we steal or a couple long shots where we steal from a different take. So how many days did you shoot? Um, we filmed about 60 days over the course of five months. Most of it okay. was consolidated. It was not like an evenly dispersed five-month shoot. My goal was to get it done in a... The dream um, had been to film the whole thing in a few days. I knew that well, little about to be filmmaking. fair, it, it does um, feel like it's filmed in a few days. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I knew little enough about making a feature, and also about the capacity of um, myself uh, or the dancers um, or the logistics of like what happens when someone has to go to the bathroom or eat a snack or whatever. Um, and you know, we wound up filming a lot of fairly short to medium days. I mean, now that I now that I really do this, I understand how short our days were. But also, uh, mood is really important. You watch energy it, is important. And when you watch the movie so quick next to each other, like you, there's also this endless energy of like, even when you think of the logistics, you think someone had to be willing to be that outspoken, or not outspoken, but just kind of like um, free in public and constantly getting people to do stuff in public. And especially if you think of it in terms of like they only did this a few days, the energy in this movie is just through the fucking roof. Yeah, I mean, Anne, Anne is, is stupendous and, and she's a totally rare performer, but she is, I, I think that you, you might perceive this from watching it. Um, maybe not while watching it, but in thinking about it, no one can be like that all the time that energy does not exist in a 12 hour a day, every that, day kind of way. That, are, that so, actually that's actually like goes down to some basic um, feature filmmaking where you right. know, w when you watch a movie, you want to think actors come up with their lines over the course of a few days and they film 
really super fast. And then when you find out like, oh, wait, they shot over 100 days. Like, right. And, and the magic yeah. is just to make this look like it's a compressed single thought coming across over two hours. Yeah, there's there's absolutely days where we there's definitely days where we filmed and nothing from that day makes a cut. There's days where we go back to a location and try something again. There's also days where we get somewhere and the light's not quite right. And, you know, I'm, I'm pretty judgmental. I'm, I'm pretty harsh about, about the film at this point because it's had this, like it's had this really bizarre legacy where people have received it and run away with it and become infatuated with it and buy it. Um, people have written their theses for their masters in film on it. Um, it's had a really unusual life that is much greater than me. Um, and I'm, I'm so fucking grateful for that. And I'm, I've had a lot of chances to think about it and speak about it, but I also look at it and I'm like, this is the beginning of my film career. Um, mm. Everything that's wrong with it is incredibly apparent to me. Um, and every single part that is wrong is my fault. Everything that sucks or that isn't focused, like I did the color grade, you know, two sleepless nights before showing it the first time. Like in Final Cut version, whatever was around 2011. Like, is that I, the final, is that, did you cut this on Final Cut? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, 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 did, I did everything. Um, we I mean, can, I had to we do can cut this myself. out, but I wanted to let you know, um, I watched the, I, when I first watched the movie, I watched it over the clips. Yeah. And la last night or two nights ago when I watched it, I watched the feature right in the Central Park sequence before it turns in the dark. There is a media missing clip. I know. I know. I am totally aware of this. This is this is like you don't have to cut this out. You can you can um, <laughs> we can celebrate okay. it like there is a fucking frame missing from my widely celebrated feature film in the publicly available version of it. And it's how like, how soon did you know about this? I mean, it's a. I've been aware of that for a couple of years, um, and it's but an Final issue. Cut then went out, and you couldn't replace it. I have. There are there are versions that exist without that, um, but the the ProRes 1080, which I which I have, is the highest quality version. Um, has the fuck up, and it is it is not to my credit. Like it's totally mortifying, and yet there's something about it that. Um, that you know, do I think I'm getting away with it? No, because you just raised it in this, in this it's, this year podcast interview. Great, but it's also uh, it, it's such a great artifact, though. It's, and such it's a, a great of the time. It's like, sort of a wink, cut. right? Like it's sort yeah. of a wink, and you know, I I would like to fix that and replace that. I also am reminded of um, you know the 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 narrative of making a Native American basket or rug in which the practice of intentionally sewing in a mistake uh, was performed to not um, to not act as though you were so perfect that you're above making mistakes. Um, yeah, I could have fixed I'm, this a couple years ago. I learned about it. I'm embarrassed in, yeah. by it, but it's also it feels like this film is so much about vulnerability for the performer. Um, the fact that it is, in some ways, you know, it's kind of become my calling card while at the same time I watch it and I think, dear God, I knew nothing. Um, you know, there, there, are a, there are one and a half million ways in which we got really lucky while filming. The way in which it resonates with people is unusual and is super idiosyncratic. People respond to it for incredibly different reasons and it has to do with 
the music and the performances and the editing. It has to do with the city itself. It has to do with what the city has become. It has to do with other people's baggage that they bring to it. And there's nothing I can do about that. And therefore, I'm kind of opting to be proud of that, um, even though I don't honestly feel like I can take uh, a lot of the responsibility for what works. And yeah, I mean, I think like the, the the like feeling of like imperfection and I could do better now and I can't look at it like that's I mean, that's pretty par for almost every that's not even just like film directors. That's just like every creative is just like especially any creative that's putting uh, something out into the marketplace and like like, oh, I have to stop this at a certain point and I have to seal yeah. it up and say it's done. And then it's now belongs to the audience. Like there's a certain point where a lot of people are, the majority of creatives tend to do the like joyless, I can't watch it type thing. Every once in a while, someone like, I imagine if you watch this with an audience, you'd get into it. Though. Okay. Like so you were saying earlier with the dancing. Let me, let me talk about that for a minute. Cause I think this, there is a, there's a pattern of people making films, um, whether they're serious directors, whether they are auteurs, whether they are, just getting out and making their first thing. Where the, the tendency to say, oh, I've, I've made it, I've completed it, I can't look back at it. Um, like that's a, that's a common thing, like we've all heard that. I don't feel that way. I like watching work that, if I really liked the feeling that a film I made produced in my own brain, I'm pretty happy to watch it again. Um, and that could say something about me. Um, maybe I'm easily satisfied, um, but, some of it is also that I like making work that gives me a feeling of a certain kind. I'm, I'm interested in making work that transports my own feelings. Well, um, you also made something that's really intensely collaborative too. Yeah, and well, when, I, when I work on, on something, even for other projects, and it's more often than not, it is musical and it is dance-based um, when I feel this way, but when I, when I make something that I think is completely great at the point at which I put it out, then it tends to be something that I'm actually kind of happy to see again. And it feels like visiting a friend. It feels like um, revisiting thoughts and challenges and, and conversations that were interesting to me at the time. Um, and after you know, we finished Girl Walk, then my wife and I went on tour. We, we shared this like we were in our own punk band and we put on probably 40 or 50 shows and a lot of the time we'd have a DJ who would, you know, typically like, like the format of a, of a girl walk screening was I had put together a kind of revolving but curated collection of 45 minutes or so of wacky and strange and beautiful films that in some cases we use the original sound and music, but most of the time I would kind of put in my own, my own tracks. And then we'd play the film, like I might say something beforehand or not. Then we'd play the film, and then we would immediately play the film again, and we'd bring in a DJ to make a new soundtrack to it. And we'd turn the sound off, and people would dance. And it went from being like a dancing screening to a dance party where part of what was really fun about doing this is that the music changed every time we showed it. Like the, the second screening that people would hang out for and dance to was seeing the entire film again and the narrative was intact, but it was carried by a different soundtrack. And sometimes it's a DJ who's spinning 
funk jams on 45s and sometimes it's kind of techno and sometimes it's oldies and sometimes it's just like top 40 you know mashup shit and it it made the feeling um, of watching the film fresh and familiar each time There was one or a few sequences I did want to ask you about. What was the Yankee Stadium sequence like shooting? Was so, that one day? We filmed, you know, I, I think that as as the if you if you think about if you think about the structure of a film, then any number of things can happen in that structure of the film. But more often than not, like a a, a film gets kind of its messiest, I'd say. Um, it's most lost, kind of two-thirds of the way through. Um, and two-thirds of the way through a film, if, you know, if, if it kind of sucks and doesn't make a lot of sense and, it, and you stick the landing, then you feel good about the film. But that's a lot of the, I, I, to me, that's a kind of a turning point for a lot of films um, where you go like, oh God, I'm, I'm lost and I don't know if this is gonna work. That doesn't necessarily happen with an album. Um, and mm. our, our film works with the Girl Talk record as uh, partially kind of as its script, or at least as its inspiration and its backbone. Um, there are portions of the music that do not work for me, did not excite me, I found frustrating or unattractive, and that was one of them. And it was the parts of the music that I had the hardest time with, that I had to really think, like, what do I want to do with this? This, this part of this very messy soundtrack. Like, what, how do I deal with it? Um, and I think that that wound up guiding the film toward a story about a dancer who gets frustrated that no one will dance with her and is trying to find ever larger groups of people to reach out to. And it's just, it's kind of like, it's just completely shocked that she can't quite get other people to move with her. And was the um, was the Occupy Wall Street sequence in a similar vein? Yeah, although that's that's kind of a, uh, I mean that's a slightly different thing. I'd say about you know when it came to thinking about the stadium, then the idea of of shooting in a in a crowded space that would be really predictably packed was it was exciting from the beginning, and I didn't you know that was a one day shoot that was a very covert shoot. We had no idea what we would get away with. We didn't know when, we didn't know when things would get shut down. We got there early. We started filming a little bit. We had Anne kind of dancing and, and flirting with, um, you know, drunk Yankees fans. And it was, it was not clear what to expect because it's a heavily policed space. And our film is really interested, or I, I should say, I'm really interested in pushing what happens in places that are policed and, and, and seeing what you can get away with before someone decides aren't there, aren't to tell you Aren't there security guards in some of these shots stop. too? Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a lot of security and in the very final moments, like there are four or five security guards who are running toward her and they are converging and they're very concerned. And it's, it's, not, um, it's not stopping the game. Nothing is, nothing is uh, you know, nothing is genuinely inconvenienced. But to me, what I like about that scene is that it's like a little window into how absurd um, 
the the energy is and the effort is uh, that goes into trying to stop something that's like fundamentally harmless and joyful and also just just wacky. Um, she was escorted out. Um, she, you know, the, she was escorted out. They took her phone. Um, I followed her uh, super covertly. At some point, I started filming. Um, I think there was one of one of maybe five or ten scenes that I shot with a, a handheld Canon point and shoot, so that I knew um, that I could always stuff it into a pocket. I definitely had to talk to security guards and you know, stuff my little SD memory card into a into a fifth pocket or something. Um, You'd say and there we was left. Like five of those you did that way. Uh, there was there were probably five or ten shots that we that we did in in that way. Like we were in Bloomingdale's. That was a similar one. Um, yeah, there are a couple of places where it, it, there's just no way you're gonna roll in with that that husky Canon 7D on the glide cam. <laughs> a big question I was gonna was how many permits did you have and how much did you steal? Zero permits, 100% stolen, um, no permission requested. Fuck permit. yeah, man, that's yeah. so cool. Yeah, I mean, it didn't. It didn't. I, I. It felt like there were a couple. There were a couple of moments where I wanted to seek, like where I really. I, I did try to actually get. Um, I tried to get permission to film in Bloomingdale's, didn't get it, and it seemed like, look, what, what are we get at, at that point? I mean, I wouldn't feel this. I wouldn't do this now. Um, but at that point, I thought, well, we're like, we simply have to do it, and um, so we're gonna do it. Well, it's it, there's a thank you credit at the end of the movie for the NYPD, so I just assume uh, a lot of winks. That's my wink. I mean, there's there's so many winks. The NYPD. Um, I will say, like the NYPD, while there are a bunch of moments where people, um, you know, came up to us and told us we couldn't do something, then there are also kind of unusual moments where there are um, where there's a little bit of permission granted without it being asked. Um, let me tell you. Let me tell you a story about um, when we were we we filmed a test. Uh, it's kind of a, a, a test shoot where Anne is dancing off the ferry. It's um, it what what became um, the kind of spark of of like runaway curiosity about what this project was about um, is now the beginning of chapter two in the film, and it's Anne starting on a banquet of plastic chairs on the Staten Island ferry, and. We filmed that uh, in January, and it, it had a kind of like viral experience um, that, um, you know, we filmed it, I put it online, um, I went on my honeymoon. About a week later, um, having not looked at the internet, um, I was in Mexico with my wife, we were in Oaxaca, and I looked at the internet, and the first site I go to for, for you know, the first site I go to um, after a week is Huffington Post to see if anything is crumbled or evolved in the world. And um, there's an article that says like, Dancing Girl does a wild performance on the Staten Island Ferry. Um, and I, I felt like I was being kind of punked. Um, I'm not special enough to deserve to be punked, but I felt like I was having a trick played on me because there was a picture of our video on the homepage of the Huffington Post and it had been viewed a ton of times and there were tons of emails of did you, know, you Did you guys finish shooting? Whenever no, you no, first no, started uploading, or did no, you guys? Like, uh, I'd filmed. I'd, we'd filmed one one day. It, it wound up being, um, it comprised what would ultimately be about six minutes of the film, um, and we we did reshot you guys all film of it. in sequence. Then, no, we didn't. Um, but we filmed this. We filmed this segment, and then we used all of that energy. We used all the all the curiosity and excitement, and then put up a Kickstarter. And and I thought that we might be able to keep that footage because it had been the kernel of, you know, so many people's 
excitement and votes of confidence. But it wasn't ultimately, like it wasn't gonna play. It wasn't consistent enough. Um, it was still the, like completely the beginning of me playing with cameras. Um, so you, for video. you ended up reshooting this? And so we reshot it. Yeah, we reshot very... it probably. And that was one of the first things that we reshot. And I was super nervous about it because if you go into, if you try to reproduce something, um, the chances of you being able to bottle magic a second time are close to zero. And I just thought, oh God, this is this is not going to go well at all. This is, this is a disaster. Um, and so we, we boarded the Staten Island Ferry. There's tons and tons and tons of cops. Uh, in the Staten Island Ferry Terminal. We wound up trying to film that that reshoot um, the day after Osama bin Laden had been captured and oh, wow. uh, or had, had been assassinated, I should say. And there was fear of reprisal. Um, there was fear of revenge. And so there was incredible alert from the police. Um, so there's tons of cops, there's tons of dogs, everything's being sniffed and I just feel guilty. I feel like I'm already in trouble. We get on the boat um, and I think we did probably like four back and forth round trips. And it turns out that some of the ferries are, you know, they look different or their seating is different or there's too many people or there's not enough people. Um, but one of the things that's also really alarming is that uh, flanking the Staten Island Ferry are two boats with massive guns, like cannons on the back <laughs> because they are escorting the ferry back and forth. And there's tons and tons of cops and it's just like, I feel so freaked out and I feel like, oh man, our film's never gonna work. And at some point we talk to a bunch of cops who come by and you know, they're coming up to us, we're just about to film, we have to go now. And I just decide to confess. I'm like, hi, we're just gonna film a little thing with my friend here, she's just gonna do a little dance. And they pause for a little bit to let me stew over it and they explode into laughter. And they're like, yeah, you're that girl who dances on the ferry. <laughs> and they want to have pictures taken with her. Um, and they were they were delighted. Like they knew of her, they knew of the her Staten small Island time ferry fame. cops were fucking with you basically. Yeah, exactly. And like there's something about that that made me think like, okay, this is um this is the kind of permission that this film requires. There's a there's a part of me that was like really tense with you on that story. There's a part of me that's also been like, I've been drunk on that ferry. I Oh I, yeah. I, yeah, I think I I I do not have a singular experience. Like I can't imagine the cops like know what's ab are, are fine with what's above board and what's below. You know, it's a good. I, I I really adore that that space to me. That's like a that's a gem of New York. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so moving on to South by, I I do want to ask, what is the actual official affiliation with Girl Talk? Did you like mm. how far along did you get before you like yeah. made? It's an interesting uh, question. We, you know, when when I, I I heard the record, I had the idea. I wrote, um, I wrote the dancers and said, "Oh my God, I have an idea," and we started talking about it. I also was curious enough about the circumstances of the release because it's it's released for free, and it has yeah, all yeah. these unlicensed they, samples. They, they use fair um, use, and, they, and right. there's something about him using creative, allowing creative yeah, commons a, for artists you know, to use their stuff. He he released the record, um, and part of part of the story when he shared it was that it was released with a Creative Commons fair use share and share alike release uh, or license, I should say. Um, and there are a variety of different kinds of uh, Creative Commons releases and fair use, as I, as I learned at the time, is like a wildly difficult to pin down um, part of US law. Um, 
the you know the I, the I circumstances under which it's 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 released it's it's um you know there is the invitation to remix it um, and to re-release it provided you share uh, attribution for Girl Talk. Um, and so the first bit of homework I did was learning that, okay, we actually certifiably do not need permission. Um, next, uh, doing anything commercial with this is going to be problematic. And that, that sparks a, a kind of complicated history for the project. Um, and you know, I reached out very quickly to his label, which is called Illegal Art, um, and um, spoke with his his label rep, who's got the who who lives under a pseudonym, which is Philo T. Farnsworth, um, who is the inventor of the tube television. It's not the real man's name. Um, and Philo Farnsworth was was helpful and encouraging in uh, in us pursuing the project, but. As we started to try to figure out, could it be an official collaboration, which I think Philo really wanted, um, then their team consulted their lawyers, who are the Stanford Fair Use Center, who are kind of the, the vanguard and uh, they're really the, the premier arbiters of fair use. Um, and they would have been our lawyers, uh, except they represented them and had a non-compete issue. And, um, and basically, it was just their advice that, like, look, there's nothing to be gained if you're a girl talk. Um, if the um, if the platform for this music becomes even broader, like there's no good that comes from more press, and he's you know at that point like he is incredibly like he's a totally famous DJ, um, and you know we were, Does this we were go, a this goes speck all the on way the ocean. South by or oh yeah did... oh yeah I mean we were a speck on the ocean like we meant we meant nothing but they basically had to say this can't be an official collaboration we would love it to be a thing that could be released in tandem but we just cannot do it um, and there was a kind of quiet but hey we we're really happy to see you do this um, I never spoke with Girl Talk Greg Gillis um, I, I I I've had a had a couple Twitter exchanges, a couple incredibly brief emails over the years, um, and kind of like a tip of the hat, but really nothing, nothing official, nothing formal. Um, so you know, they they keep it as far, you know, they keep it at a distance. But there's obviously um, quiet, uh, quiet tolerance, tacit approval. What um, what part of the festival were you in? Were you guys in the were Were you guys in a music video part, or were you in the no? Features? We were in We were in the features. We were in the features, and so we showed where'd the film. Guys, where'd you guys play at? What theater? Christ, I'm forgetting. We We played it in four different theaters. We had five or six screenings. Um, I saw virtually did you guys do no the convention other convention center, the draft house, uh, draft house downtown. Did you we guys did do the Paramount. I think we did Paramount. We did the oh, convention center. Yeah. We did the convention center. We did, I think. We did a, an Alamo draft house a little bit outside of town. I don't know how many there were. We might have done two draft houses. The um, South Lamar would probably been. Um, I don't know if um, there's one like a little ways uh, out of Slaughter. Do you guys Slaughter? You... Slaughter. There we go. Wow. It rings a bell. Yeah, I forgot Slaughter um, was around by then. Yeah, and then and then I think I think we did two at the convention center. And in in dealing in like getting our dancers to those and driving people to their places and um, doing press stuff. Um, you know, and actually just seeing a lot of music, um, then, you know, like my, my wife was with me, we were seeing a bunch of bands and, um, and just trying to figure it all out. We didn't see a lot of films. We didn't really know how to navigate some of the, 
you know, I, I think I'd have a different sense now of just like what we're trying to navigate. But I did a ton of press, a ton of conversations. Um, the dancers would be there for, for some of those, but not all of those. Um, we had the car, and so getting people to and from, you know, our kind of haggard Airbnb, you know, 10 or 15 miles outside of Austin um, was an endeavor. And, um, you know, just dealing with like, like dealing with the reality of like lines and cost and distance, if you don't really know what you're doing, is um, it makes it all a lot. It was super mm -hmm. fun, but we also, you know, we, we, th we threw, I'm answering in too many di different directions here, so my apologies. We, um, for the first screening, we threw a, um, we were asked to throw kind of like an, we were asked if we wanted to do some kind of intervention. Um, and an intervention? Like we were completely delighted to do something that was um, unorthodox. And we talked about shutting a street down. We talked about, you know, what the dancers might might bring to it. We wound up having the dancers dance in the in the theater and then um, kind of Pied Piper everyone outside um, to where it was like a pretty chilly night. And we had... 200 massive three-minute burn sparklers um, and then mm -hmm. had probably a 20-minute like, like dance party. Like in the Central Park sequence? Exactly, like echoing, echoing the finale. And so we had probably like a 20-minute dance party outside and a couple different people um, donning Anne's jacket, which got kind of passed around. And it was, um, it was thrilling. Like it was, it was really like nothing else I've, I've been a part of. Um, you know, after the screenings, after the screenings, there's always like, pretty extended conversation and people are curious about what we were doing and how we made it. And, and so, you know, I think people go to film festivals and they're, and they're pretty serious about their craft and they're diligent about um, how they're marketing their work and they're, uh, they have a mission. Um, they're focused. I was, I was so not that I was, I was thrilled and honored to be there and was trying to have a good time. It wasn't, it wasn't like party and rage woohoo. It was just like, yeah, we had three dancers who um, we were really trying to look after, and we had um, <laughs> not made the best decisions about where we were staying. And um, <laughs> you know, we'd made a film for twenty thousand dollars that took a year, and we were touring with it, kind of you know taking a couple bucks here and there to keep it all going. And so it was like kind of you know lean times, but super super fun times, and. Um, we were just happy to be present. I mean, I kind of laugh about it now because it was just so absurd in retrospect, but it was, um, you know, happy, lean times. So I guess we're getting close. I, I mean, did you finish it in 2011 or did you finish it in 2012? Like, we are we close it, to it? We're close to the 10 year yet? We're coming up. We finished at the very end of 2011 um, in, a, in a strange kind of turn of, turn of events, a, a strange calendar moment. It was exactly a year between the day that I wrote the email to the dancers saying, I have an idea, here's the soundtrack, are you with me? Um, and the night that we had our film premiere, um, which was at uh, the Brooklyn Masonic Temple in Fort Greene, which was um, it's about a 1500 person event, screening, party, DJ night. Um, we had promised a whole bunch of people tickets uh, as thanks for, for donating money on Kickstarter. Um, we had nowhere near enough extra money to, to, to support that. 
Um, and you know, Kickstarter was pretty new at that point. It was like a, I think it was their second year. Um, and we'd made friends with a bunch of people who, who worked there and they just absolutely loved the project and wanted to support us. And it felt kind of like part of their mission. And they, they, they pretty much, pretty much saved our bacon. They said to us, um, if you'll let us kind of throw this party with you, um, we'll help, like we'll pay for the venue, we'll get the DJs. Um, and this can be our, this can be our Christmas party and your premiere. How does that sound? And it was like a, a resounding fuck yeah. Um, yeah. So we also had, you know, we had like right out the gate, we had um, a bunch of super hyped fans. Um, so that was the premiere. We started releasing it like one chapter, um, I guess two chapters a week um, with a website called The Gothamist. Um, and um, yeah, and then started, start like got on the road and went on tour. Uh, well, I mean, there was obviously a reason I wanted to talk to you about this movie nine years on a big chunk of it is like, I feel like, especially when I was rewatching this, um, the other day, this weirdly feels like a great COVID movie just because it's a movie about spaces and joy and happy crowds and infectiousness and just, um, (laughs) and in New York that's actually come together. Like, yeah, but I, at the beginning of the pandemic, I remember reading uh, the film critic Devin Faraci make this point that um, we are now being faced with a very heavy handed metaphor that the world is massively interconnected right now. And so like, in a, we might as well make it a good thing that we're this interconnected. So, um, yeah, I mean, this movie never, like I've, Every person I've made watch this movie, it never fails to bring a smile on their face. Mm, um, or someone that. someone like me or like you used to be, apparently, who was not going to dance. This is a movie that inspires people to dance. Uh, it's a movie that brings about joy. Um, yeah, I'm so really glad. Go- I mean, I, I think of it as being... Um, I think of it as being kind of a, a artifact-owned... Like, it's it's shot in public. It is. It was shared in public. We helped people screen it in public for free. I, I think of it as being kind of like a, a public good. Um, I it, it's hard not to talk about that side of it and not sound like a a total asshole. Um, as as if as if I'm just like so I've created nostalgic uh, versus an asshole. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, as if I've created some you know discovered some new element um, because it's not that. But so so many people have have felt strongly enough about it that at some point in the last 10 years, um, and constantly, um, they seek me out and say something about how it's affecting them today. And I think that to me is magic. Like that to me is totally magic. And it's, I, if I'm honest, it's also completely intimidating um, because mm. it's, it's so much bigger than me and it's so much bigger than the intention that went, that went into it. And there was a lot of care that went into it. There was, there was a lot of thought. Um, I don't mean to diminish that, but it also is, um, I mean, to me, like the, the, the great lesson for me is that um, it is possible to make something um, that resonates in a way that is so much greater than, um, than what you can possibly imagine. And that is like, that is the source of massive hope. Um, and at a point in time where Oh God, my own hope is is maybe a little bit shaken. Then yeah, it's, um, all, it's sort of a 
Yeah, it's a, it's a strange example to me now to think, okay, almost 10 years on, um, once upon a time I made this thing that had this impact. And in the ways that I keep working, um, I, I really hope that work um, just has, has, has some other kind of resonance um, with new folks. Well, I don't know. It's a mystery. I, <laughs> I am excited that I get to, when we post this episode, I get to put um, the link to the website and that I introduce more people to this movie just because this movie's criminally underseen. So, um, Jacob, I wanted to thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you so much. I appreciate the time. It's, it's fun to talk about this. It's, it's really, it's, it's fun and humbling as hell. <laughs> um, Glad I could help. <laughs>